morning, everyone. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Proverbs 16.32 Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. Proverbs 19.11 and 19 A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them and you'll have to do it again. Proverbs 24.28 and 29 do not testify against your neighbor without cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? Do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. Proverbs 29:22. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Throughout the summer, we've been studying the topic of wisdom uh, through a close examination of different themes from the book of Proverbs. And so we have seen how God gives us practical wisdom for all different areas of life, including uh, relationships, the words that we choose to use, uh, friendship, money, um, our diligence, family, relationships, all these different areas. We talked two weeks ago about wisdom for our emotions. We talked about envy and fear, uh, different emotions. Today, we're going to be wrapping up our series uh, by focusing specifically on wisdom for the emotion of anger. And so what I did was I thought about my different colleagues and friends, and I thought, well, who is the angriest pastor I know uh, that can speak? No. Uh, Mike Park is a brother here, uh, a guest preacher this morning, uh, part of the pastoral team at Grace Downtown. Um, and just a few days ago, we had a, a group meeting of the different pastors and elders in our network. And after a, an extended time of discussion and uh, just working together through some uh, through different issues, I, I said afterwards to Mike, and I meant it because it was floating through my head during the whole meeting. Uh, Mike, you, you are you have real wisdom. Uh, he, he's a brother who sits and listens carefully, is not quick to speak, but when he does share, there's just insight, these uh, just ways in which he can see uh, the way things are working or the ways things ought to be, and when he speaks, uh, just getting right to the heart of different issues. Just so appreciate that. Uh, so to invite him to share from God's wisdom, uh, just words of wisdom on the topic of anger, um, thought it would be a wonderful blessing to have you, brother, to come and share with us, and so I'll invite Mike to come forward, and let's all welcome him together. Good morning. It's good to be here. Uh, downtown sends a lot of love, and you're always in our prayer, so it's uh, good to be uh, worshiping with you this morning. And I think Duke is right. I probably am the most angry pastor out of uh, all his friends. So. I told my congregation that it's not very rare or often that you get to preach on something that you are an expert on. But uh, 
I get to talk about anger. Well, before we actually get into the text, I, I am so thankful for just seeing you all worship, especially the children running around dancing. Um, it really is. The gospel is the only thing worth singing and dancing about. And my heart is full. And I said afterwards, man, we don't even need to preach. I think that was enough. But then uh, I think I would get in trouble if Duke were. <laughs> so we're going to have to get into the word. Well, as Duke said, uh, to sort of frame the talk this morning, we're going to talk about anger. But before we actually get into the subject itself, uh, I've spoken with a number of our folks, and they all sort of said, not a whole lot, but a few of them said, why, why Proverbs? And there was a pushback against looking at the book of Proverbs. And I get it, because even as a pastor, it's hard to preach on the book of Proverbs. Maybe not for Duke, but it is certainly the case for me. Why? Because sometimes it could seem a bit boring. It lacks the narratives, right? In, in downtown, uh, a number of months ago, we looked at the book of Judges. And if you ever read through that book, you know it's got some really crazy stories. And so compared to that, Proverbs is very tame, very pedestrian, and it really is boring. But not only that, it lacks the gospel component. It's not like the Pauline epistles filled with gospel indicatives that sort of warm your heart as you listen. And for some of you, it's just way too practical. It's like, this is too simple. It's like, we are beyond that. Can you give me something more? And I thought about this because those are legitimate pushbacks to the book of Proverbs. And I thought about three reasons why we do and ought to study this book. First, it is part of God's word. It's what Paul referred to as scripture that is God-breathed. But not only that, Proverbs helps us to navigate through life where the law is silent. It's as if the law sort of leaves these gaps and, and leaves it up to us to figure out how we ought to then appropriate these truths into our life. As someone said, you can obey all the laws but still manage to ruin your life. For example, child rearing. I, I have four children, and uh, if I were to strictly abide by the law, uh, I think I could be a pretty good parent. But there are a lot of things where I'm not sure how the law, the scripture actually addresses. So I need the wisdom of God to speak into that. And thirdly, the reason why we study the book of Proverbs is because by embracing Proverbs, we embrace Christ himself, Christ, the wisdom of God. And so as we seek to implement these truths, these practical wisdom that we find in the book, uh, into our lives, what we're doing is bringing Christ, inviting him into our life, in the way we make decisions, in the way we engage our neighbors, in the way we raise our children, that's what we're doing. And hopefully, um, with that as a backdrop, that we would uh, be open to, all the more so, to the studying of this book. Can I pray for us before we actually dive into the word? God, we thank you. Thank you for the gospel that we can sing about, Thank you for the gospel that is really worth dancing about. And God, I pray that you would help all of us to meet you in a fresh way today so that as we leave this place, that our hearts will be full and that our lives between Sundays will sing and dance about the good things that you have done for us. We know that your kingdom is not of words, so we ask now that you will come, Spirit, and take these words, these truths, and apply them into our hearts. And shape us, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen.
few weeks ago, my wife asked me to make pancakes for my children. You see, my calling card is bacon and eggs. I can do that in my sleep. In fact, I actually do a lot of that in my sleep because I'm not a morning person. Like my children, they, they wake up at the crack of dawn and they're going 100 miles per hour. Whereas me, it takes me about two cups of coffee to start thinking. So when my wife asked me to make pancakes, I was like, am I being punished for something here? <laughs> what happened to bacon and eggs? Well, being a good husband that I tried to be at times, I decided that, okay, I'll give it a shot. Well, I've not done pancakes before, and I've not done pancakes since. Because at the end of that, like, 10 minutes of trying to make pancakes, I came up with a hybrid of a pancake and a scone. I didn't know pancakes had, a, like, a third dimension to it. But uh, I, I said, well, <laughs> this is what I got. So I put it on the plate and served it to my kids. And my two girls, Lydia and Hannah, were seven and five. They ate their pancakes. I know that's how much they love me, right? And uh, I served it to my son, James, who is three years old, and he refused to eat. And I repeatedly told him, I said, James, if you're going to watch Caillou, his favorite cartoon these days, you're going to have to finish your pancakes. And sure enough, he refused. He just sat there dangling his tiny legs, looking all cute. But I knew what he was trying to do. And I said, no, you're going to finish your breakfast if it kills me. Okay? So I tried the logical approach, and I said, James, you know, breakfast is really important part of your day, and if you don't, and I go on this like 10-minute speech about the importance of healthy breakfast, and of course it did nothing. And at this point, I am fuming. It's like the, the cartoon character where, where he turns or like red from bottom up, and the steam's coming out of there. I'm like, that's basically what's happening. Why? Because they're just any pancakes. They're my pancakes. I made these pancakes while I was half asleep, right? And I said to James sternly, I said, James, if you don't eat your pancakes, you're never going to watch Caillou ever again. <laughs> and as soon as I said that, all these like, I, I'm, I'm a bit old school, and I like the old school WWF wrestling. All these like wrestling moves were like flashing through my mind. I'm like, man, I could certainly body slam this kid, figure four leg lock. I, I can get him to eat his pancakes. And that's when my wa wife walked into the room and she said, oh, he already ate his breakfast. <laughs> I'm like, what? And now I'm a mess. My anger quickly turned to guilt because I'm looking at James dangling his legs. And I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe I got so mad at you. And then I turned to my girls and they give me this look like, dad, it's too early for this. And then I, t I looked at my wife. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me this before? So I'm guilty. I am I'm ashamed and I'm angry. And eventually I'm like, I, just give me a hole. I, I'm going to crawl into one of these and not come out for a week. Now, whether you like to admit it or not, we are all emotionally broken. And the good news of the gospel is that God intends on redeeming all of us, not just our spiritual life, our relationship with God, but everything about us, including our emotion. But sadly, many of the discipleship programs that I've come across recently don't reflect this, meaning the focus of the programs is too narrow. Many discipleship programs put high premium on theology and doctrine, which are all important, so don't hear what I'm not saying, but often they minimize and even trivialize emotion. What we need in an age of sensation where feeling equals 
authenticity is a healthy balance of emotions. And I think that's where the Bible takes us to. The gospel addresses us in that, uh, takes us in that very direction. It's concerned about us and the way we deal with conflicts in our life. Do we just shut down? Do we get overly aggressive? Are we in it to win it? It's concerned about how I deal with loss and disappointment in life. Do I give myself time and space to grieve and grieve well and leave room for that? Or am I supposed to just put on a smile because God's going to take care of all things? In fact, Romans 8.28, right? He's doing all things anyway. Is that supposed to, you know, is that how I'm supposed to deal with this? And the Bible certainly is concerned about how I deal with my anger. Am I supposed to be angry? And if so, is it okay for me to have thoughts of body slamming my three-year-old child? What does the gospel say? And here, before we actually get into it, I want to, on a side note, talk about emotional health. Because I think this is one part of our humanity, if you will, that we often overlook. And one of the most helpful books I've read on this was written by Peter Scazzaro, uh, who's a pastor and author from New York. And he talks about the importance of recognizing our nuclear family. Now, whether we like, to, uh, or like it or not, much of who we are and how we handle our emotional life, okay, and how we express our emotional life comes as a result of our nuclear family. It's shaped us in ways that we may not want to. And that's certainly true in my family. In my family, if something is very important, right, we don't know how to sit and have a civilized conversation. We just get louder. And so by the volume, you can tell if something is important or not. Whereas my family, uh, my wife's family, they actually sat down and had family meetings. They would call these meetings where they would sit and everyone would take a turn, just articula articulating their feelings and thoughts on subject. And so when we got married, I mean, you could imagine uh, uh, the, the sort of conflicts we had, you know. I'm getting passionate about something because I think it's important. And she's like, why are you getting so angry and give me a chance to talk into the subject. And, and Scazzaro goes on to say that in order for us to understand our emotional health, right, we got to study our nuclear family. How do, how do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with loss? Right? All of these things spin out of the family that we're a part of. And I think it's worth paying attention to. Right? And I think that's why the Bible says to the parents, more than pastors and teachers, that you are the primary educator of your children. Deuteronomy 6, right? Whether you walk or lie down, whatever you do, teach them, model for them scripture. Why? Because nuclear family is important. But also, the Psalms encourage us to name and express what we feel. Some of us are so emotionally unhealthy that we don't know what we feel. We feel something, but we have no idea what it is. Like, that was certainly the case for me. I just felt like everything was anger when it was really, in fact, hurt and disappointment. But I would translate into anger, and I would just have these outbursts uh, pretty much all of my life. And Psalms encourage us to just pause, to reflect, look into our hearts, and see what it is that we're feeling, and learn to artic articulate that in our prayers before God. And that was one of the breakthrough moments for me in my life. When I read through the Psalms and saw the prayers, the kind of prayers that these godly men prayed, it wasn't this, you know, kosher prayer. Sometimes it was very raw. 
right to the point, saying things like, God, really? Are you serious? And it gave me freedom to be able to come before God with all my angst, all my concerns, and just throw it at his feet and say, God, I, ha- I can't do this this way. And that's part of what it means to be emotionally healthy. And the gospel definitely takes us there. But the second reason why these discipleship programs I, I have issue with, not only are they too narrow, but it's also superficial. Again, Schizero says, because people are having real and helpful spiritual experiences in certain areas of their lives, they mistakenly believe they're doing fine even when their relational life and interior world is not in order. Isn't that true? We come to Sunday worship like this, and from the service and the word, we, something just goes off. We, we understand. We get it. And, and, and we go to retreats or mission trips, and we learn, and we have these experiences, and somehow we translate those things into spiritual maturity, right? Oh, I, I figured that out. I experienced this. I learned this. Wow, I must be growing in the Lord. But Skazira says, actually, it's, yes, you are growing, but at the same time, your emotional life hasn't been touched at all. You are not addressing the heart, the deeper issues of the heart. And Skazero goes on to say that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. For us to ignore the emotional part of us in the name of uh, experience or uh, information, right, then we're doing ourselves great disservice. Now, why does this happen in a Bible-believing church across the world? I think it's because uh, we have an inaccurate biblical understanding of anthropology. We somehow think that when we come to church, we come with open minds, but with closed hearts. We, we like theology, we like doctrine, we like learning new things, but we don't want God to deal with the mess, the baggages in our hearts. And that's why for some of you, confession is very uncomfortable. It's like, what, I, I gotta expose that? No, just give me more theology. Just give me more of that. But that's what God calls us to. In Genesis 1.27, the Bible tells us that we were created in the image of God, and he certainly is emotional. In the Old Testament, we see God who delights. He rejoices over his people with singing and dancing. But not only that, he grieves. He becomes angry, yet he relents and shows mercy and compassion. And in the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed in a similar way. All that to say, in order for us to grow into the image of God the way he intended us to, then we need to embrace this side of us that often is very uncomfortable, which is the emotional life. So what does Proverbs teach about anger specifically? There are three things for those of you taking notes. First, the good. Second, the bad. And third, the ugly. Sounds like a great movie title, right? The good, the bad, the ugly. First, the good. In Exodus 34, God reveals his glory to Moses with these words. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, when we read the words compassionate, gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness, we get it. 
We get it. That's what we sing about. That's what we pray for. But slow to anger, we don't have a category for that, do we? A God who is slow to anger and does not leave the guilty unpunished. And that's where some of us, we get bent out of shape. Like, how many times have we actually sung about the anger and the wrath of God? We don't, because we don't like that part of God. But it actually is a part of his glory, who he is. So how do we explain this? How do we make sense of an angry God who is also uh, compassionate, merciful, and glorious? And I think Keller's thoughts are helpful here. Tim Keller, he writes, anger and love are not opposites. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Love sometimes leads to anger. Did you get that? Love sometimes leads to anger. In other words, anger is an expression of love. For example, if someone takes advantage of my wife, I get angry. If someone threatens my children, I get angry. If someone hurts my friends, I become angry. And before coming to D.C. about a year ago, I lived in St. Louis for about eight years. In fact, one of my youth group members lived in Ferguson. So I used to drive through that town every Friday and Sunday. And seeing what's unfolding in that part of town has really broken my heart. I remember some of the, the streets there, some of the restaurants, and some of the people that I would pass by on a regular basis. And I know, I mean, I don't know all the details, but I know uh, after having heard and read enough that regardless of what happened, whether he robbed a store or assaulted a police officer, it does not warrant death. And I just get angry. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Couldn't we do better as a community? And if we find ourselves becoming angry at racism, why should we expect any less from a God who loves us perfectly? See, when God sees the horrible effects of sin, he becomes angry. He gets angry at the cycle of poverty. He gets angry at oppression based on race, class, and gender. He gets angry when Christians are persecuted. And we see a glimpse of God's heart in John chapter 11. You may recall Jesus is standing in front of his friend's tomb, and he is weeping. Not just shedding a tear, but he is weeping, deeply troubled, the passage tells us. Why? It's not because he lost a friend only, but it's because of death itself. He knows better than anyone else that death is an anomaly. It's not a part of God's good plan for us. And he hates And that's why he could not sit idly by. Instead, he entered into our world, laying aside the glories in heaven, taking on a form of a servant, a slave, Paul tells us. But he didn't end there. He died a death of a criminal to deliver us from death itself. If you're not a Christian and you're looking into Christian faith, and you may be wondering or questioning why does God allow so much evil and suffering in this world, if he is supposed to be a good God who is sovereign, let me just say this. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you understand God's good design for us. And nowhere in those two chapters will you see sin and its consequences. We did it to ourselves. Yet God did not leave us to our sins. Yet he stepped into our mess 
and he plans to renew all things, starting with us, his church, and using us as a beacon of hope into our schools, into our families, into our workplace, into our community. And that's why we need to learn to manage anger well. Here, Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians 4, 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And he makes an important distinction. Anger is not sin. Anger can lead to sin, but it is not the same thing as sin. In Proverbs 14, 29, and 16, 32, in the two verses we read earlier, we realize that it's the uncontrolled anger, one that is not filtered by the wisdom of God and love for others that leads to sin. That's what it means for us to have great understanding. We'll talk more about this later, but for us to have great understanding means that we ask the question, what do I do? How do I conduct myself in this context to love God and others well? That's what it means to have understanding, right? Because Proverbs always has community in mind. It's not about me and my personal gain, but it's about us as a community and how we can better this community that we're a part of. But it also says that we got to filter our anger through love for others. That's what patient is, right? Love is patient. Patient man, better than a warrior. In other words, Paul instructs us to be slow to become angry. And that's exactly what James tells us in James 1.19, that we ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. John Chrysostom once said, he that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause sins. And when we do get angry, uh, a wise person once wrote that our anger has to be at the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way. And God is a perfect model of this, isn't he? He is slow to become angry as we read in Exodus 34. But in Romans chapter 3, we see just how long his patience runs. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, he patiently waited to deal with sin. He provided a means of sacrifice to point us toward the day when he would provide the ultimate sacrifice, which will once and for all take away the sin. But in the meantime, he waited, he waited, he waited. And in the fullness of time, God poured out his wrath, all of it, on Jesus, who became sin for us on the cross. That's why John can say in 1 John 1, 9, that he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. If you read that text, you think, well, if he's just, shouldn't he punish us for our sins? But it says he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. Why? Because he, Christ, paid the price of our sin once and for all. And for God the Father to demand additional price for sin would be unjust. And that's why he faithfully, looking back to the cross, hears our prayers of confession, and he forgives us. Second, the bad. Anger is a part of basic human emotion, but it's been tainted by sin like everything else. And anger has many disguises. It looks different for different people in different situations. For some of you, it may show up as a tear that looks more like hurt, but it's your way of actually getting back at someone. For some of you, it may come out as a cold shoulder or stonewalling. You just shut down completely. 
For some of you, it may show up in picky criticism about things that are completely unrelated. You may be really upset about something, and over here, if your spouse doesn't keep, okay, if the spouse, okay, I'm going to air my laundry here. If the spouse doesn't pick up his socks, then you, you make that a point of contention. You're like, why do you always leave the socks around? Why can't you pick it up? Really, is this what? Is this what's going on? But she's really upset about this, right? Sorry. <laughs> my wife, on a side note, said, I think you share too much about my family. Uh, anyway, um, anyway, she's not here, so I can, I can do it. <laughs> and for some of you, you might just lash out at people, again, who have nothing to do with the issue. You might have gotten a, into an argument with your co-worker, but then you come home and you take it out on your children. Anger looks differently for, for all of us. But whether your anger is aggressive, passive, or a combination of both, if you're not careful, it can lead to sin, and sin always leads to destruction. Here in Proverbs 29, 22, it says, a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Now, what sort of person is Proverbs 29 talking about? Here, a hot-tempered person is someone who, whose resentment of others causes him to transform every difference into a fight. In other words, he is looking for a fight. Why? Because he just doesn't like the people around him. And so if the socks is there at the end of the day, he will fight over it. If the dishes are piled up, he will fight over it. If the traffic is slow, he will get upset and angry about it. And he's always looking for ways to fight. Right? He's a hostile person. And that sort of person... Proverbs 29 tells us, uh, always commits sin. So let's look at three ways that sin is actually destructive. How is angry, uh, anger destructive? First, anger destroys the body. It destroys the body. Mark Twain once said, anger is an asset that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything which it is poured. And according to research, anger is just as detrimental, if not more so, than even stress and anxiety. I, I didn't know that. That sort of explains me and my family. Hey, oh, that, that would have been helpful about 30 years ago. And since our body doesn't make moral judgments, it doesn't matter if our anger is justified or not. You see? Even a short-term anger can weaken our immune system and lead to a variety of health problems, including high blood pressure, heart attack, and stroke. But anger also... Secondly, impairs the mind. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, anger is that powerful internal force that blows out the light of reason. It has a way of short-circuiting our brain and hijacking common sense, doesn't it? Again, Proverbs 14, 29, a patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. You see, the patient man asks, how can I, in this given situation, conduct myself in a way that honors God okay, and that does good to my community. And that's where the patient's part comes in. He is slow to become angry because he is working through that question. It's not about I'm angry and I got to deal with this. I got to get it off my chest. As much as how can I do the right thing? And as he answers that question, Proverbs tells us, he gains understanding and wisdom. And how many times do we display folly? 
because we don't work through that question and exercise patience, we display folly all the time. And I do this especially when I am driving. Um, <clears throat> I get so angry. I don't know about you, but I get so angry when I'm on the road. I don't know what happens, but the moment I'm behind the wheel, I become this, like, driving Nazi, you know, the protector of the road. <laughs> and I judge everyone who drives faster than me because they're crazy, right? They're reckless. And those who drive slower than me because they're a nuisance and they need to get off the road. And I get so frustrated at people who, are, who don't know the right of way, okay? I understand we came to the stop sign at the same time, but I am on your right, which gives me the right to go first. In fact, I actually had to give a lecture on this at a Safeway parking lot not too long ago. I'm like, excuse me, sir. I understand you're really upset, but I am on your right. And that gives me the right to go first, okay? Just Google that. Like, I, I was trying to explain this to a gentleman who was not having it. But I get so angry when that happens. And here's the kicker. You know, in D.C., I mean, parking spaces, I mean, they are rare, right? And when I finally find someone who is about to leave their parking space and I give the signal, they go in there and they're, like, finishing their book, eating their dinner, <laughs> catching up on all their emails and Facebook. I'm like, come on. How long does it take for you to get into the car that you drive every day, turn on the engine, and go? I get so angry. And, you know, many times my wife has to remind me that our children are with us. You know, it's like, hey, your kids are they're in the car. You need to be careful what you say. I'm like, no, this is injustice. They need to learn too, you know? <clears throat> and obviously three of my children... I have picked up on my antics, and, and now my three-year-old James, every once in a while, he'll say things like, get off the road. <laughs> it's like, oh, is that person from Maryland? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and when I hear those words, I, I become very proud. I'm like, that's my son. That, I have taught him well. No, no, just kidding. Actually, it's, it's really scary. It really is scary, and then it's, it's embarrassing, you know? like, what else are, you, are they picking up? It really is scary. And for me to sit there as a father and as a pastor to display my folly for my children to see, and I expect them to grow up to be better than me, like, I, I think those are mixed messages. We do that all the time. Anger finally divides community. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrong. And you know this, the common denominator in racism, classism, ageism, sexism, you name it. It's really lack of love. If we, and I, I dream of this quite often, if we could be a community, if Grace Meridian Hill could be a community where everyone just loves each other well, we would have to bar the doors at 1025 because we wouldn't have enough seats for everyone wants to be a part of this community. You know, even if we don't understand everything about God, and even if our theology isn't great, not saying that we shouldn't learn, but if we could pay close attention to the greatest commandment, commandment to love God and others well, and if we can just commit ourselves to that, obviously, it goes without saying that it's going to cost us something. 
we can't go about our life and expect to form that kind of community. It requires commitment and sacrifice on our part. But if we could achieve that, just imagine what kind of church this would be and how different this community would be simply because we as a church have committed to loving one another and loving this community well, regardless of the different groups. Which leads then to my third point. Why is it so hard to do that? It's because anger is just a symptom, not the cause. It's just a symptom, not the cause. And it points to something much deeper. When you get angry at a person or a situation, that person or that situation is not the cause. They did not cause you to become angry, but it's an opportunity for the anger in your heart to surface. It's already there, you see. And you have to understand this in order for you to address the, the issue of anger. If you simply modify your behavior and think that counting to 10 before you act and say things is going to help, without ever addressing the heart, you miss the whole point. Because the ugly part about anger is really our heart, as we will see. <clears throat> when the check light engine comes on your dashboard, you don't take a hammer and just crush it. And you say, good, I've resolved this problem. No, you, none, of us, none of us would do that. No, you get out and, and you, you see what's underneath the hood, what's wrong with it, and you take it to a mechanic. And so when you peel back the outer layer and get to the core, you will see what's really ugly about anger. And that is sin. Sin of self-love. And I'm not talking about this healthy biblical concept of self-love because there certainly is that. We see it in scripture. Unlike other religions, Christianity holds a very high view of humanity, right? Including our physical body. It's not just that we're um, we're just a, it's not a prison or an illusion, but it's really a part of God's great creation for us, right? And self-love definitely has its proper place. But if self-love trumps our love for God and others, that's when we get into trouble. Augustine once said that this is really the misordering of love. That's what sin is, misordering of love. Rather than loving God and others first, we love ourselves first and foremost. And self-love has a way of rearing its ugly head all the time, doesn't it? All the time. And anger is just one of many tools in its box. I remember this one time, my wife and I, we got in a huge argument. I know, some, you, you, you don't know. <laughs> so those of you who don't know me and my family, you're like, man, we need to pray for this pastor. <laughs> Duke really did get the most angry guy. <laughs> uh, we're, we're okay, uh, but if you want to pray for us, I welcome that too. Um, but we got into a huge argument on the way to our friend's house. And it got to a point, and it never gets this bad, but it got to a point where I did not want to talk to my wife. Like, I, I, I was so upset at her about this, you know, some disagreement we had. And I was like, I'm done talking about this. I don't want to talk to you. The moment we pulled up to our friend's house and got out of the car, and they came out to greet us, it's all smiles. Right? That happens to you too, right? A amen? Okay, good. I, I was, am I the only person? <laughs> you know, we, on a side note, you talk about marriage issues and all the single people are like, man, I'm never getting married. 
It's not that bad. Just look at Duke and Paul. Great marriage. Great marriage. It's not always like this. It can be this. So, okay. And, uh, you know, here's, here's what's really messed up about that situation. I, I thought about this. When we got out of that car and we saw our friends, I was not thinking about how my wife felt. I was not even thinking about how my children felt sitting through that argument and feeling the tension. I was only thinking about my reputation as a pastor. And that's what killed me. That's, that's the reality right here. And my understanding of that is just a small sliver. Yet God sees it all. And he is committed to loving me and changing me. That's the gospel. That even though I am far worse than I will ever know, that is grace abounds even more. And he is committed to changing me to become like him. Not only based on that, but he's committed to loving me just as I am. And if you're here today and you feel like, man, I've messed up and I don't do this anger thing well, I want you to know you're in good company. Because God loves you just as you are in all your brokenness. Yet he is committed to loving you. Even when you don't have the strength to hold on to his promises, they hold on to you. And in the end, he wins. And that's the beauty of the gospel. So a couple of things, actually five things as we close our time this morning together. First, how do we then grow in emotional health and especially in anger? How do we allow the gospel to really speak to us? I think first, you have to admit you are emotionally broken. In Washington, we, we had this pressure to be put together, right? That's what it, the city encourages. But when we come before God, and hopefully in this community, and I know that that's what Duke prays for, and that's what he strives, that we can come just as we are. This is a safe place where we can just say, this is who I am. I'm not perfect, and still be loved and accepted and embraced. So admit that you are emotionally broken. There's a power to naming something. It takes away, okay, the mystery. You're able to identify and key in on that issue and figure out how the gospel really addresses that, addresses that. Second, identify your emotions by allowing yourself to feel. Okay, someone once said, emotions are the language of the soul. They're the cry that gives our hearts a voice. And sometimes I think it would do well for us to sit and listen to our hearts. And some of us, we feel afraid because of where it might take us. Because we carry a lot of past baggage with us, but you've got to allow yourself to feel. Don't be quick to gloss over it because it hurts so much, because that pain may be the pathway to healing. Third, face the deeper issues of the heart. As you allow yourself to feel, you're going to come face to face with some of the things that hurt and hurt a lot. And this really can be scary. And I went through this in my own life. My father passed away when I was two and a half years old. I grew up always thinking that I was somehow different. 
because all my friends would talk about their parents. And I had to say, oh, my mom. And they would always talk about stories of what they did with their father. And I had no stories to exchange. And I felt like something was wrong with me. Somehow I was guilty of, of this whole situ- situation. And uh, after I got married and became a father for the first time, I had to take some time out to sit and revisit a painful past part of my history. And it was uneasy. I had more questions than answers. I blamed God, blamed my mom, blamed myself, blamed just about everybody. For a while, I think I was, I was pretty messed up. I didn't want to deal with this whole parenting thing, especially being a father, when I didn't have a role model. But that's where I found the gospel, that God is my father, that he cares for me and loves me in ways that my earthly father could never have. And he invited me into a deeper fellowship with him to learn his heart for his children, his child to find peace and comfort and rest in those things. So face the deeper issues of the heart. And two more, quickly. Be rooted in the word. Be rooted in the word. Paul tells us that we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And pathway to emotional health begins in our hearts by getting the word into our hearts. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said in Matthew 12, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of evil stored up in him. So when things occur and we get upset, again, it's not the cause, but it's an opportunity for those things to surface. And they point back to the deeper issues of the heart. And how do we then store up good in our hearts so that we then can bring out good in those situations honor God and love others rather than just emote and and, and hurt people along the way. We've got to get the word in our hearts. We have to allow the word to richly dwell in our hearts. We've got to get it in there. This means more than just reading the word. We've got to study it, memorize it, come hear it, exposit it on this pulpit, share it, talk about it in your community groups, and get it into your system. Get it into your system so that if something comes up, your first thought is the word. Your natural knee-jerk reaction is the word. That's the goal that we should strive for. And finally, walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit. We can't change our hearts. But we can make room for the spirit to change our hearts. And for us to engage him through the word and through prayer, through fellowship, through worship, serving this community, we're inviting God to come and do that work in our hearts. So set up reminders. Grab an accountability partner if you don't have one. Be committed to community groups. Don't underestimate the importance of showing up, being there, listening to people's stories, learning from one another. It's very important. And I would say this. As we do this, God is going to change our hearts. He's going to change our hearts so that we become that person that Proverbs speaks about. And ultimately, that person that Proverbs points us to is Christ himself. So that we 
in the way we exercise anger to reflect the beauty of Christ to our family, to our church, and to our community. Let's pray together, shall we? God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is living and active because we need for you to come and do some surgery in our hearts. If we're honest with ourselves, we see something much bigger and uglier than anger. And we have nothing, we have no power, no good works that could address that. So we invite you, Spirit, to come and do that work in our hearts. Change us, we ask, and allow your word to reign in our hearts so that we can become people who reflect you in all we do. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand together. Thank you, Pastor Mike. We're going to sing.